0: Good morning, church. Again, it's good to be with you. If you have your Bible, uh, please go ahead and open it up to Psalm 137. And if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 137, starting in verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem... Let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Pray with me. God, these are your words, not merely man's words, but your very words inspired and given to us. And God, I ask this morning, would you help us to understand them rightly so that we can understand you rightly, God? Help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Psalm 137 definitely catches your attention, does it not? Before we um, get to the sermon, I do need to say a few things I've been wanting to say for some time about this pulpit. Can I just state the obvious? Can we all agree? This is an Adam-Mumpower-sized pulpit. (laughs) Is it not? The re- he feels very at home, I'm sure, behind this thing. The rest of us who get behind it, here's what we feel like. I have an image. There you go. <laughs> People told me they couldn't even see me behind the music stand at Sun Valley, you know. So anyway, all joking aside, it really is a beautiful, a beautiful pulpit. Adam and I went and visited uh, John and Lois Kyle. Some of you know John and Lois, and... um uh There at Brooksdale near the, the hospital in Monroe, and um, John was uh, is a, re- a pastor in the PCA um, and he came and saw this pulpit a few weeks ago. maybe James Barefoot was the one who showed it to him and uh, took a picture of John uh, behind the pulpit and he had actually framed it and kept it in his house when we went to go see him but he said something that was very insightful and I said I've got to share that with him and uh, he said, John Kyle said, I noticed that there are two kinds of wood on this pulpit. One is very smooth, the kind of lighter wood, and the darker wood is very rough. And so John Kyle said, I thought to myself, that must be fitting, and it must mean that some preaching from this pulpit will be smooth, and some preaching will be rough. I thought, wow, what a pastor. Very, um, very Very wise. Um, I'll leave it to you to decide where this sermon comes from on the pulpit this morning. <laughs> this morning um, we are taking a break from the series we've been going through, which is the book of James, and we are addressing a very specific topic, which is the sanctity of human life. You know, normally when we hear the sanctity of human life, we instantly think abortion. and We almost equate the two in our minds. But as I was thinking about the sanctity of human life and reflecting on what it means, it occurred to me that when we say the sanctity of human life, what we mean is life is sacred, life is holy. Uh, And I started thinking about it, and I was like, you know, that really is a broader topic than just abortion. Sanctity of life is kind of an umbrella topic that encompasses many issues, including, yes, abortion, but also Racism and slavery and sex trafficking and pornography, which basically is sex trafficking, and poverty and oppression and abuse and genocide, and all of these things are issues like abortion that fit up into this larger and broader theme of the sanctity of human life. And so this morning, my sermon is not exactly a sermon on abortion. It's a sermon on the sanctity of human life. Why all of human life is sacred. However, within the sanctity of human life, abortion is a critical topic. And so what I just want to do is suggest a couple Bible verses that you can go read later this week. So maybe if you're taking notes, jot down some of these verses and go read them for yourself. There's 2 Kings 8.12, which Daryl read this morning. Luke 136. Through 56, and Ecclesiastes 11:5. So 2 Kings 8:12, Luke 1:36, Ecclesiastes 11:5. And I'm not going to preach a sermon on abortion, but if I were going to preach a sermon just on abortion, this would be the, the the sermon. As Christians, we can't believe in abortion. Think about it, because the gospel is that our God became a baby. God became a fetus. God became an embryo. And to deny deny that there is life in the womb is basically to deny the incarnation, that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. It is impossible and inconceivable for a Christian to endorse or tolerate abortion at any level. And I challenge you this week, before our prayer walk, to explore that for yourself more if you have some questions on it. But I want to get to the the topic of the sanctity of human life. And the reason why, you know, why do I want to go towards this broader topic instead of narrow down on abortion, is because of this. Often we talk about abortion uh, solely as a problem. And it is. It is a problem. But I think it is also a symptom of a deeper problem. The other week, uh, or I guess a few months ago, um my wife had to rush me to the ER because I was throwing up blood. Was that a problem? That definitely was a problem. But was this, what was the solution? It wasn't just to brush my teeth <laughs> because I knew that this problem was also a symptom of a deeper and far more serious problem. So I went to the ER and it ended up being that my, my esophagus had been torn that's why I was throwing up blood. Sorry, that's gross. But <laughs> I, I wonder if... Abortion is symptomatic of a deeper issue in our culture, of a deeper problem. Romans 1.21 says this, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so that verse seems to say that they did not honor God as God. And the direct result of that was their Their thinking became futile and their hearts became darkened. I think this means that when we are wrong about God, we will always be wrong about us. If we fail to understand the value of the divine life of God, of course we can't understand the significance of our small, fragile human life. Because as we saw in Psalm 8... It is God who has crowned us with honor. We're created in the image of this God. And if we think wrong about God, we will think wrong about ourselves. And that is why not only abortion, but all sanctity of life issues, every one of them, racism, oppression, sex trafficking, slavery, all of these things are darkened heart responses justified with futile thinking that comes from not honoring God as God. You know, typically when we talk about defending um, the sanctity of human life in the womb, we take what I call the Horton Here's a Who approach, which is a good approach. I love Horton Here's a Who. I actually gave it to my nephew for his first birthday. I think I'll give him a Dr. Seuss book every birthday from, you know, on. But uh, Horton Here's a Who, a person's a person uh, no matter how small. And we kind of zoom in uh, into the human life with a microscope we put it under a microscope and zoom in on the life in the womb and we look for signs of life we look for eyelids and we look for fingernails and we look for when the heartbeat starts and and that's good that's it's it's compelling and it's right that we do that because that is a human inside the womb and there is another approach to see the sanctity of human life and that is to know that if we're made in the image of God we don't only need to take human life and put it under a microscope we also need to As it were, grab a telescope, and we need to look up, and we need to consider God and how big He is. Because if we are made in His image, we can never understand ourselves apart from Him. And so this morning, that's what I want us to do. Uh, My sermon, in a sentence, you can go to the next slide, is this. The bigger God is, the more sacred human life is. The bigger God is, the more sacred human life is. And now what I mean by that is that not that we somehow make God bigger, okay, or can contribute to his bigness. I don't even know if that's a correct theological category for God. What I'm saying is our perception of God, how big we perceive him, that will impact how sacred human life is to us. And uh, I thought that we needed some sort of chart. So you can go to the next slide. I made this for Adam and Daryl, the, the math people. Imagine, imagine, we could somehow create a mathematical chart that represented the value of life. Okay, so that's what uh, I have done here, um, very mathematically. We'll start with Daryl. Um, you know, so maybe on the uh, this is this the x-axis. Maybe on the x-axis, we'll say you have your quantity of life, multiply that by your quality of life, and you get some sort of number. You know, how valuable. You are your size, your worth. I gave daryl a ninety seven um, daryl 's pretty valuable, I think. I gave Adam a ninety nine because Adam is my boss <laughs> so but i didn 't give him a hundred because i'm not i 'm not like an idolat- idolater or something i 'm just a brown nose, so he got a ninety nine um, I consider Daryl to be twice as uh, productive as the average human, so I consider myself pretty average so uh, I haven't been converted to type A yet, Daryl. So I'm a I'm a 50, okay, clocking right into 50. But you know I'm not being self-deprecating. I'm better than some people. So Daryl's son, Benjamin Timberlake, I, you know it's, it was a close race, but my ping pong skills give me that slight edge right there, wherever Benjamin is. Um, he must have inherited his dad's ping pong skills. But uh, so but this is what we do. All joking aside, we we compare ourselves, don't we? To To other people, you know, well, I'm better than this person, but I'll never be that level. And then when we think about the value of God, we say, oh, yes, and God is infinite, infinitely valuable. Theologically true, but the problem is our perspective. You see, we're kind of cropped in, zoomed in on ourselves. But what happens, you can go to the next slide, what happens when we zoom out a little bit? God is infinite, right? And we are finite, so as we zoom out, you can go to the next slide. We begin to, it begins to change the way we view ourselves, doesn't it? You can zoom out one more time. And we could go on and on and on. God is infinite. And so, check my math, but mathematically, in the presence of an infinite God, we are all equally inferior to the bigness of this God with whom we are dealing. And our perspective of God impacts how we view life. I think this is what the Bible means when it talks about the fear of the Lord. I think it means recognizing that God is very big, very powerful, and we are not. One of the the reasons I love Psalm 137 is because it shows us a glimpse of the bigness of this God. The story behind the psalm and all the way to the very last verse of this psalm, which really kind of... You know, strikes us, it kind of grabs us and shakes us awake to the reality that the God we're dealing with is different than we expected and bigger than we comprehend. So uh, I want us to look at Psalm 137. This summer, as I met with the youth uh, for LIT, Leaders in Training, uh, high schoolers came, and it was a crash course on spiritual leadership. We talked about how to study the Bible, and I gave them the three T's, of biblical interpretation. I'd be really pleased if all of them remembered it right now. But the three T's are the then meaning, the timeless principle in today's application. So when you read a text, it's just a tool that you can use. The then meaning, the timeless principle in today's application. And so I want us to use that this morning as we look at Psalm 137. So the first T is the then meaning. The first question we have to ask is, what did this text mean back then? Because in order to understand what Scripture means, we need to know what it meant. We want to move quick to know, what does it mean for me today as I get out the door to go live my day? But we've got to stop and and ask ourselves, what was the original meaning of this? As I look at Psalm 137, I notice that it's kind of broken into three sections. You've got verses 1 through 3, which kind of give you the setting Maybe clue us into the, the backstory of the psalm. And then you've got verses four through six, which give us what the narrator is thinking, kind of how he responds to the event in the first three verses. And then finally you've got verses seven through nine, which give us the petition that he makes. And then of course you have the very last verse, which kind of rubs us the wrong way. What so let's ask ourselves what's the story, what's the context behind the psalm? Well, verse one says, "By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion." Anytime you see the word Babylon in the Bible, unless you're reading Revelation, it clues you in to the fact that we are in Star Wars episode three of the entire Bible. You guys have heard the Gospel according to Star Wars, which is, you know, episode, episode one, the Phantom Menace, the snake in the garden comes and he's trying to kill. Humanity, and then he, all of Genesis, he's trying to kill the offspring of the woman, and then Pharaoh, he's got a snake on his head, he tries, you know, tries to kill them, but God rescues them. Okay, episode two, Attack of the Clones, Joshua fights all these wars, the Judges, they fight all these wars, David, Saul, they fight all these wars. You get to Solomon, who doesn't fight these wars. So Attack of the Clones, and then episode three is Revenge of the Sith, which spoiler, the Jedi Jedi Temple gets destroyed, all the Jedi are killed. And it's the darkest hour in Star Wars until the new hope comes, which is Jesus. What happens after the church is planted? Episode 5, the empire strikes back. We're waiting now for the return of the Jedi. So that's the gospel according to Star Wars. So as you see, as you see Babylon, you're clued into, okay, I'm in episode 3. And what is episode 3? The kingdom splits after Solomon. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And then you've got, I guess for you guys over here, you've got Assyria... Modern day Iraq and Babylon, Assyria comes in 722 because of the sins of Israel, destroys them. Judah is supposed to learn from that, but they don't. Babylon conquers Assyria, and then Babylon comes and conquers Judah. The, the climactic moment of Star Wars Episode 3 of the Bible is the destruction of the temple. <clears throat> Babylon comes in and they level Jerusalem, they destroy the temple. They grab the people, they carry them away into exile, 900 miles to Babylon, which uh, is basically from where we're standing to the Maine, or to the bottom of the Florida Keys or to Wichita, Kansas, where Bill and Nancy are right now. 900 miles is very far away. I think this is the, I think this is the part of the Bible we are most unfamiliar with. Is that fair? The prophets... You know, end of Second Kings and Second Chronicles. We 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 are the least familiar with this part of the Bible, which is sad and ironic, because this is the part that holds the whole thing together. It's right there in the in the in the middle of your Bible. If your Bible was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, this would be the peanut butter and jelly of the Bible. You know, if your Bible was a grilled cheese sandwich, this is the cheese. A, to not read and, and understand this part of the Bible is like having an Oreo and taking off the double stuffed filling and just eating the two black cookies that nobody eats because they really want the double stuffed cream <laughs> filled in the middle. This is a part of the Bible we need to know. The story is Babylon comes, and there's a prophet, his name's Jeremiah. So if you want to read, I, I say start in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the prophet who's called to prophesy. Doom is coming. Go tell them to repent. And interestingly, Jeremiah 1, right? God says to Jeremiah, "Before you were formed in the womb, I knew you, and I called you." So there's another sanctity of life verse snuck in there. Jeremiah is this prophet of doom, and all of the book of Jeremiah is him is him coming to the people and he's saying we've got to repent we've got to change time and time again the people love their sin they they don't listen to jeremiah they don't take him seriously and then the day comes the book of lamentations is basically the eyewitness account of jeremiah seeing the destruction of jerusalem and it the bible goes to great lengths to try to explain to us the terror and the horror of this event. Lamentations, just it's just imagery that tries to describe what's going on. Here are a couple verses. Chapter 1, verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All her people groan. As they search for bread, they trade their treasures for food. You see, Babylon came and sieged them. And so they were starving on the inside until they were finally conquered on the inside. It says, The Lord has become like an enemy. Your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Here, here are two verses that, that are just sad. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away. And then this, this verse the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. How horrible is this event? It is the darkest day in the history of Israel. Not only is the city destroyed, not only are the people dragged 900 miles into exile, but also the king, Jeconiah, who is the son of David, the son of Solomon, on down the list, through whom the Christ is supposed to come, Jeconiah is cursed in Jeremiah 22, and God says to him, you will never have an offspring, a physical descendant on the throne. And that's a problem because the Christ is supposed to come through the son of David. He's captured, he's dragged into Babylon, and then his uncle becomes king, Zedekiah, and he's the king when the final destruction happens. And Zedekiah tries to run away like a coward, disobeys Jeremiah His sons are caught and murdered right in front of his eyes. It's the last thing he ever sees. His eyes are gouged out, chains are thrown on him, and he's dragged to Babylon. It is the darkest day in the history of Judah. And that's where our narrator, that's how he winds up by the rivers of Babylon, by the waters of Babylon. He sits down to weep because he remembers Zion and his tormentors mock him and say sing us one of the songs of Zion you see once you know the once you know the story you get the weight behind his sorrow and why he says how shall we sing the lord's song in a foreign land we do have to somehow address the final verse because notice what he prays daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. I mean, uh, this is one of those, did the Bible really mean to say that verses? Because we've got a good guy praying something that seems kind of bad, right? I mean, someone could easily look at this verse and say, how in the world can you say the Bible teaches the sanctity of human life when there are verses like this in it and dozens of other verses that seem to say the exact opposite, that seem to endorse the destruction of human life. We could preach a whole sermon on that, but here are just a couple thoughts for you. One thought that's helpful is, what is part of the story is not always the point of the story. So just because something is a part of the story doesn't necessarily mean it's the point of the story. For instance, the blockbuster film The Lion King. I'm guessing many of you have seen the movie The Lion King at some point in your life. I recall that Scar kills Mufasa, his brother Lion. But I've never heard an animal rights activist compounding on the door saying, we've got to stop showing Lion King. It's teaching people to kill lions. It's endorsing the death of lions everywhere. And we laugh because we're like, well, no, that's not the point of Lion King. The point of Lion King is not go out and kill lions. That's a part of the story, but that is not the point of the story. What is the point of this? I think the point of this is that there is a big God, and he brings justice everywhere, every time. In fact, nearly 150 years earlier from this event, God promised through the prophet Isaiah that judgment would come to Babylon. In Isaiah 13, 6, it says Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. So we can't fault the psalmist for knowing his Bible and praying the promise of God. He is praying for justice and judgment on a people who have been cruel and wicked to him. What's interesting is how this doesn't seem to be a problem at all for the psalmist, Or for Jeremiah, in in Lamentations 1.18, Jeremiah says, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. So this is is our modern problem with this text. The problem for the ancient people was, when is God going to bring justice? When will it come? The problem for us is, if we're honest, we kind of put God in the dock and say, God, what's up with that? Why are you doing this? How could you do this? But we've got to understand that's a cultural, modern problem that we have with this. In fact, our culture has so much difficulty with this whole idea in a text like this that one famous evangelical pastor a few years ago recently suggested and begged churches everywhere to please unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament. Can we just please unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament? Because the Old Testament has all these crazy you know you know god judging people's stories in it it's really hard for us to understand those they're just confusing for people can we just unhitch the old from the new or unhitch the new from the old the only problem with that and the reason we can't do that is because one the old testament was the bible of jesus you know the bible that jesus read when he says in matthew 5:17 you know not a word of this law shall be made void You know, heaven and earth will crumble before that. The Bible of the Apostles, when Paul says all scriptures breathed out by God, he's talking about the Old Testament. We can't just throw out the Old Testament. But also, Jesus himself claims to be the God of the Old Testament. Jesus says, before Moses was, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus is telling and teaching everyone, I am the God of the Old Testament. This means that Jesus is the God who brought Babylon to bring judgment upon Judah. And furthermore, Jesus enters in to teach us something about human life that's even more profound than what we see in the Old Testament. You see, Jeremiah was maybe the prophet of the doom and wrath of Babylon coming. Well, Jesus is the prophet of the doom and wrath of of God, of hell that is coming. An idea that's not really fully fleshed out in the Old Testament. Jesus picks it up and says, Life is way, way longer than you think. Life is way more sacred than you think. Do not fear those who kill the body and after that can't do anything else, but fear him who's able to destroy both destroy both soul and body in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him the the wrath that jesus is teaching is a million times more severe than the wrath that jeremiah was preaching can we agree so i mean if anything we should unhitch the old testament from the new right because the new testament is too radical the new testament is so severe what do we do with this i think that the the beauty of this passage and the difficulty of it is it presents us with a mystery It presents us with a mystery about who God is. And we are just not very comfortable with mysteries. The mystery is this. God is a God of wrath and fury and hatred for sin. Totally. I mean, Jesus himself, I think the church is reading Revelation in Sunday school. You see it right there. Jesus is the one opening the seals in heaven. And at the same time, God is a God of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And now, we have to remember, truth is seldom simple. We want to take this truth of the Bible and say, some people say, God is, you know, fire and brimstone, you're going to hell, repent, God is so angry and mad. And others run the exact opposite way and say, God is love. It doesn't matter what you do, just come on in. And he won't, you don't have to change anything. He has no sort of standards or anything like that. And it's this tension, right? It's a mystery. And there are plenty of mysteries that we believe as Christians. I mean, think about it. We believe that God is three, and yet God is one. We believe that God is sovereign over everything. He chooses those who are saved. And yet, we all have free will and responsibility for our choices. We believe that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he did that while he was a baby in the womb. We believe that the kingdom of God is here now and not yet. It's coming. And we believe that God is good even though he allows us to suffer. As Christians, we just have to embrace the mystery. This is a mystery. Calvin writes about this and he says, God, in a way that cannot be put into words, at the very time when he loved us, was hostile to us until he was reconciled in Christ. So God is... At the very time he's overflowing with love for us, he is hostile towards our sins. I don't claim to understand it and have full knowledge of this mystery, but what I will say is, this is a big God we're dealing with. He's not a simple God. He is a very big God. The then meaning we've touched on, let's talk about a timeless principle. What is the timeless principle of this passage? I really think it's verses five and six. So look at verses five and six. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Now, what does he mean by that? If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Because we know that Jerusalem is gone. Jerusalem has been demolished, the temple is gone. the city is in rubble. The people have been drugged, dragged away into exile, not drugged, dragged dragged away into exile. The son of David has been cursed and it doesn't seem that there's any way for a Christ to now come. and the king is himself in Babylon in exile, 900 miles away from the throne of David in Jerusalem. What could possibly be left? And then notice what he says about it. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. How does Jerusalem 900 miles away matter to this man in exile in Babylon? And what does he mean by there's something that needs to be set above my highest joy? There's something more important, he's saying, than any joy I could have on earth, than any pleasure I could experience. There's something that even transcends the tragedy of his people. And he knows that there's something valuable about Jerusalem. This is where, you know, reading Jeremiah all the way through, you see this mystery of God. Because in the middle of Jeremiah, in the midst of his people rebelling against him, and refusing to repent, God says to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God says, You broke the covenant I made with Moses. I will do this. I will make a new covenant. Not like the old covenant. I'll make a new covenant. I'll put my law in your hearts so your sin can't ruin this and I'll have you forever. He believed that God was doing something in our world. And all he knew at that time was it was Jerusalem. Psalm 2 As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. He knew that, and he believed that. You see great faith that he has to say, God is big enough to keep his promise through Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem is gone. You see, whether or not he realized it, what he was looking for ultimately was Jesus. He was looking for Jesus. Because Jesus came, and he was the son of David, and he was the son of Solomon, and he was in the line of Jeconiah, Through Joseph, he had a right to the throne, but he was not physically descended from Joseph. He is biologically the son of David. Jesus came to a kingdom in rubble, and he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. He inaugurated the kingdom of heaven. He claimed the throne of Zion. And the craziest part of it all is Jesus, remember, is the big God of the Old Testament. And so when Jesus comes to his people, how does he handle God's overwhelming wrath for our sin? Jesus, instead of Jerusalem being destroyed and the temple again being destroyed, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Instead of the wrath of God falling on the people of Jerusalem, falling on us, Jesus says, I will take it. This temple, I will absorb the wrath of God. A suffering of which the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of Babylon is merely a shadow. Jesus suffers the wrath of God and he offers salvation to anyone, anyone at all, who will crown him king of their life. And this shows us something else about human life and the reason it's sacred. Human life is so sacred because the blood of God was spilled to purchase it. That is how sacred human life is. The timeless principle for us is this. Do you set Jerusalem above your highest joy? Do we set Jerusalem above our highest joy? Well, what does that mean for us today? And that, that moves us into today's application, which as we close, I'll make it simple. I'll just leave us with one verse to kind of walk out and think on. But I think it means Jerusalem today, it reminds us of the kingdom of God is here. And in Matthew 6, Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. Every joy that this life has, every pleasure that could possibly be there, set this above your highest joy. Jonathan Edwards wrote wrote about this verse, something pretty compelling. He said, Most men are of a private and narrow spirit. They are not of the spirit of the apostle Paul, nor of the psalmist, who preferred Jerusalem above his chief joy. Here's what he says about the Apostle Paul. He was greatly concerned for the prosperity of Christ's kingdom and the good of his church. We see a great many men wholly engaged in pursuit of their worldly interests, many who are earnest in pursuit of their carnal pleasures, many who are eager in the pursuit of their honors, and many who are violent in the pursuit of gain. Listen to this. But we probably never saw any man more engaged to advance his estate nor more taken up with pleasures, nor more greedy of honor than the Apostle Paul was about the flourishing of Christ's kingdom and the good of the souls of men. To set Jerusalem above our highest joy is to see life as God sees it. It's to agree with God that what he is doing in his kingdom is transcendent over any tragedy in our own life and that It is higher. It needs to be held higher than any joy we could possibly have. Like Paul, we become greedy for the kingdom of God, which spreads as it's received in the souls of men. Not a kingdom of this earth, but a kingdom of heaven. The verse I'll leave you with is 1 Corinthians 9.22. And this is a glimpse into the mind of Paul. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I'll read it again. I I have become all things to all people that by all means I might just save some. Do we understand that life is sacred because eternity is very, very long? And are we willing to love people who look different than us because we know the value of their soul. The true sanctity of human life is this, and this is the gospel for you this morning. God wants you, not because you have been good, not because you deserve it. The truth is you're actually far worse than even you understand or think you are. Like evil Judah, but God has loved you with an everlasting love. It doesn't matter even if you have had an abortion. It doesn't matter if you're addicted to pornography right now. It doesn't matter if you have done something so evil, so perverse, you would never whisper it in the ear of another person. Do you understand that the good news is that God is big enough to save you? He is bigger even than your sin. Fear Him today and receive His love for you. Let's pray. Jesus, you are a big, big God. And God, we will never understand how it could just be a gift, a gift that we can't earn, a gift that we can't merit, a gift that we can't contribute to in any way. But it's just your love for us and that your promises whoever repents and believes will be saved. And Lord, I ask, one, for anyone in the room who feels that pull and who feels like they need to repent and believe in you. God, would you give them faith in this moment to trust you and come to you? And God, I ask for us as a church, would we be so convinced of your goodness and your bigness and your word that we would set Jerusalem above our highest joy, to love our neighbors, to love those around us, who desperately need you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.